You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. show we're going to be speaking with Deanna who writes over at MissFiology.com and there's this really fascinating way that I want to start this and I really want to highlight this this paragraph that I was reading when I was really exploring her, her story and she said everything I've ever done or thought has been explored and contemplated by someone else who came before me what makes me unique is the meandering path I choose this is profound and honestly in her case I think it's going to resonate because she didn't just lose a decade. She lost maybe 15 to 20 years to drug and alcoholism, waking up in her mid thirties and basically trying to claw her way out of the financial pit that this left her in reaching debt-free in a relatively short period of time and realizing, you know, this is just the starting place. Now it's about financial independence. We're going to walk through her story. I think it is going to have so much appeal for people that said, I've lost so much time. Is it too late? And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I am doing well. And yeah, that ending there, is it too late? It's never too late, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's the beauty of Deanna's story, the beauty of so many members of our community, their own stories. Deanna has become a good friend of mine over this past year. I've met her at Camp Fi and again at FinCon, and she's just one of those truly special people. And I love spending time with her, and I just can't wait to introduce her to the larger Fi community here. So with that, Deanna, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. What a lovely introduction. Thank you. So Deanna, I laid kind of the groundwork, the frame for this conversation, but I mean, this is your life. And I think for the benefit of our audience, listeners, maybe people that have a loved one or on somewhat of that similar trajectory themselves, they would benefit from just kind of hearing a little bit about your backstory. I mentioned drug and alcoholism. How early did this start for you? Unfortunately, pretty early. I took my first drink when I was, I think, 11 or 12, and I drank alcoholically right from the start. Um, I didn't make a habit of it until I was in high school. And as soon as I could uh, drive and um, had money to spend, I was um, consuming a lot of alcohol, which should be disturbing. You know, obviously, I was drinking and driving and making reckless choices. But, you know, it all stemmed from just low self-worth, a lot of insecurities that I grew up with that were basically unwarranted, but I was a little uncomfortable navigating the waters of peer pressure and high school. And while I'm very extroverted and I love to be with people, I was very uncomfortable in my own skin. And so I was always looking for security and something outside of myself. And unfortunately, I found that through drinking and drugging, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's just a facade that I was able to feel comfortable enough to do all the things that I wanted to do. And as you can imagine, that has a way of catching up with a person. But I was a high-functioning addict and alcoholic, and so I did pretty much all the normal things that most people do. I worked, um, I maintained 
my studies and I tried to appear normal on the outside, but on the inside I was dying. And um, I was able to carry on for many years until my mid thirties when I hit a hard bottom. I'm very interested in talking because frankly, you're the first person that's publicly said on the show that I was an addict and probably will always have that part of me somewhere in the background, maybe just out of sight, hopefully. I'm curious if you could explore addiction when you knew you were addicted and also when the switch flipped and you realize I no longer have control. Mm. I did not think I was an addict or an alcoholic for many years. I just thought I was you know, having fun. I was, I knew when I started to get into drugs that it was obviously illegal, but I considered myself a recreational drug user that the ebb and flow was, I would tend to do something to an extreme and kind of take myself to the brink of insanity. And I'd realize that, you know, it was going in a bad direction. So I'd clean myself back up, kind of pause for a little bit and get my life back to a normal state. And that became the pattern for many years. And so because of that, I was able to ebb and flow for many years. And the biggest thing I had learned at a young age was to not get caught. And so I was always living this double life of, you know, what I portrayed to society and the world at large. I mean, there were times where I was a little bit more overtly rebellious, like when I was 18 and I shaved my head. But um, for the most part, I was trying to appear normal and then doing all this stuff on the side. So a lot of people didn't necessarily know, you know, and I was fun. I was a fun partier. But I also used it to just get through the day. And so I would say that the first time I thought I might be an addict or have a problem was when I was in my young 20s, when I was living in Colorado, and I got introduced to what became my drug of choice. Um, And so it just took me down a dark road, and I quickly realized that it was going nowhere good. So it was the first time I actually considered treatment, you know, attending a treatment center. I didn't. I actually just kind of stopped and started um, pursuing other things. But that caught up with me in my 30s, and it was reintroduced to me, and it it took me down. Ultimately, I knew probably within about two years of living the cycle of needing something to get out of bed needing something to get through the day and needing something to go to sleep. Um, just that vicious cycle, also accepting to be in a, an abusive relationship. I ended in a place where, you know, I would look in the mirror and say things like, I hate you. I don't even know who you are. And I quickly knew that life was going nowhere good. And that's when I finally came to a place of admission that I probably had a problem and I needed help. Deanna, in some of our talks, especially about me being a parent of two young daughters, we've talked about how important it is to have time with your kids. And and I know I've seen that in your writing. And I know a minute ago you said low self-esteem and that taking that first drink made you feel fun. And I think you've written all the things that maybe you didn't feel inherently. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to explore that for a couple minutes. Like talk me through where that comes from, like that low self-esteem, is that there? Because there are lots of parents out in the audience who, who are living this Phi life and, and have the opportunity to maybe spend time with their kids or maybe work a little bit more and, and earn money to get to Phi, to have that time with them later. And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Absolutely. So when I got sober, 
and the fog lifted, I set myself out on a journey to figure out why this happened to me. I wasn't okay that it happened and that my life ended up in this place. And I wanted to get to the root of it. So it involved many years of, you know, just self-discovery and kind of reviewing my past relationships and resentments and identifying my role in situations so that I could really identify my biggest character defects, which were self-pity, anger, rage. And then I wanted to figure out where those things came in. And then I identified that I started to believe some really incorrect things about myself at a young age. So I believed that I was stupid. I believed that I was unworthy of being loved. I believed that everybody else got the manual to life and somehow I was skipped. I identified those things as false. And so I wanted to figure out where they came in. And as you mentioned, I've shared this talk with you because your story resonates with me so much because I see you being able to spend time with your daughters. You know, you're going to their swim meets, you're at these events. And so I was raised in a two-parent Christian household. It was kind of indicative of the generation that my father was the sole breadwinner. And I just want to preface this with, you know, my parents are awesome. They did the best that they could with what they had, but they were just parents who chose to have people, you know, and they were imperfect in some ways. And so while my father was the sole breadwinner, my mother was able to stay at home with us. My father was a salesman and he's a type A personality, as am I. And he got caught in the habit loop of stress and high pressure and he poured himself into his career. And so my interactions with him were few, but the ones that I did have were often volatile. So he was, you know, a live wire. He was full of stress. They were either when he was um, disciplining me. So I learned that I could get attention by getting in trouble. While I had all the physical securities that a child needs growing up, I lacked some key emotional securities from a father. You know, and I believe that children need the love of a father and a mother. I'm not too ignorant to know that that happens in all cases. I know there's examples of people having father figures or mother figures to step in in the place, but I definitely lacked the security from my father. And so I searched for that at a young age in a lot of poor choices. And I searched out negative and positive attention from men. And I just searched for it elsewhere. And so I think my story can be very powerful to people in the fire community. Um, you know, I say, if you are a parent of young children and you're able to fire, do it. If you're able to take a sabbatical while your children are young because of the financial choices you've made, do it. But if you are, you know, maybe 10 plus years out from FI and you have young children and you can achieve it by just cutting down your expenses and increasing your savings rate, then awesome, do it. But my caution is if you're doing it at the sacrifice of the time that you would spend with your family today, be careful because children know nothing about board meetings and commissions and bonuses and bosses and deadlines. They only know that when they get up on that swim block or out in that soccer field or up on that stage and they look out and see both parents present, they know that no matter what the outcome, it's going to be okay. So don't miss those events. Yeah, that is so incredibly powerful. And, and yeah, it's something I think about all the time with my kids is, is I'm just so fortunate to be there with them. And all they want is my and, and our, certainly our attention and our time. Kids don't want material goods. Like they don't ask for anything. They, like you said, like 
you know, when I have my little one, Molly, at, at her swim practice, like she's she's still uncertain. You know, she's still six years old and she has a sit there at swim practice hmm. three times a week. And every time she gets out of the pool, she looks over to the stands to make sure we were watching. It's just so amazing to me that I'm there to give her a thumbs up literally every single time she swims 25 yards. Guys, and guys like, stop this. I literally have tears right now. I've had, <laughs> I've had yeah. one other instance in the entire show where I've had this happen and you're breaking me down here. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it, it's, it's so powerful. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, you and me both, man. I got, I got them kind of streaming down my cheeks here and <laughs> it's really important. And I hope it's not lost on people that, that your kids, they want your time and they really want your attention. I know I need to be better at this sometimes too. When I'm sitting there and I have my phone, that's something I can be better with. So this is not like, oh, Brad's great at this. I'm far from it. It's just, it's a work in progress, just like everybody, right? Yeah. Well, you guys are on the right track. I mean, I see you both being able to spend time with your children and it it pulls on my heartstrings and you know, not for what I didn't have, but for how you're changing the future of your kids' lives. It's it's a beautiful thing. You know, Deanna, I want to circle back to essentially this awakening, this light bulb moment. You know, you preface this that, you know, you had this drug of choice. And I'll just say for our audience, you can go to her website. She documents this in all of its horrific glory. I mean, it is not a gateway drug. These are hard drugs that you are using. But thankfully, your story doesn't end at the bottom. But the bottom was your light bulb, your awakening moment. Like, let's go there. What causes you to say, I just, I can't sustain this. And then what action do you take? Okay. So I had a pretty dramatic bottom. I was in an abusive relationship. I was addicted to something 24 seven. I was just breaking down mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. I had a vision where I saw myself. I kind of saw three paths. Um, it was a night that I was up late after, you know, heavy drug use. And I just, I knew I was, I felt like I was dying and I had this vision of myself in an insane asylum, rocking back and forth. And I, I just knew if I kept doing what I was doing, that's where I was headed. And then I saw a second path and it was black. And I knew that to be death and that I could choose that right then and there. And then I saw a third path, which just had a tiny glimmer of light. And for me, that represented a God that I once knew. And so I got down on my knees. I prayed for the first time in many years you know, ultimately it led to me also asking for help in the natural. So it really resulted in surrender and the realization that I was probably going to die or at best end up insane. And so I started being honest. I started telling people I, you know, I quit everything cold turkey and not that I would recommend that to anybody. There are plenty of detox and treatment centers out there. However, I just I walked away from it all. And the hardest thing to walk away from was the relationship because that was just a vicious cycle of abuse, not really physical, but emotional and mental. And he was also one of my drug dealers. So there was a lot tied in with that. So walking away and cutting the cords from that was really the first key. And then once I walked away from that, I quit everything else. And so I was in you know, a fragile state. And as I started to tell friends and family, they were very concerned for me. Then I met with my psychiatrist and I told her because she was also supplying me with something that I was abusing. She was really the first person to say, all right, you need to get into a recovery program. Ultimately, that's what I did. And I just found so much peace in being honest 
about what I had been doing, what I had been experiencing, because for years, as I said, I had been living a double life. And so you're kind of keeping up with these lies and you're telling one person something and another person something else. And so I found it very refreshing to just be honest. And that's where my healing began is just in the rooms of recovery, talking, listening, meeting other people who had found success. And then, as I said, I set out on a journey to really figure out what were the drivers and why I ended up here. Deanna, you're describing this double life. I'm curious, uh, just a couple of things. Did your family and friends, were they aware that you had these issues or, or was this truly this double life where you're living this this one environment with this drug dealer relationship and, and obviously severe issues with drug and alcohol addiction and on the one hand, but then normal Deanna on the other, or, or was this very apparent to everyone in your life? I think I fooled many people, but there were some key people that recognized that I was not healthy. And so for one, I think God has a sense of humor. My sister-in-law is a drug and alcohol counselor. And so she would make comments to me and I could just tell by the way she looked at me that she knew. Obviously, I didn't want my secrets revealed, but I am really happy to say that once I got sober, she's one of my best friends and one of my biggest cheerleaders. Other than that, though, I think I fooled a lot of people. I do think my parents recognized that there was some unhealthiness. My family didn't really care for the relationship that I was in. However, they didn't know all the things that surrounded it. And then I do have this one friend who has been with me since uh, junior high. And three times in my life, she's had like an intervention with me. So once in high school, she stood by my locker and said, Deanna, you're going to kill yourself or you're going to kill somebody with your drinking and driving and I'm not going to be a part of it. And I think I said something disturbing like, well, I guess we're not going to hang out. After high school, when I got into drugs, I remember she had a similar intervention with me. And then amazingly, we would stay friends through the years. And then in my 30s, when I was in the throes of addiction, she got wind of it and she called me up and said, I know what you're doing. And of course, I denied it. But I remember it scared me because I realized I was not as slick as I thought I was. And so I would say that to anybody who knows a family or a friend member that might have a problem, confront it. You know, it it was the seed that was planted in my mind that things were starting to catch up with me and I could not keep going down this path. And so she was one of the first people I reached out to when I walked away from it all. And she's, thank God, still one of my closest friends and obviously one of my biggest cheerleaders. Yeah. To have a friend like that is just a true joy. I mean, that's what an amazing person just hearing about her. That's remarkable. And I'm curious, like, how do you walk away? Like, so that for me, this is maybe the a big takeaway for audience members. I, I know people relate to stories and undoubtedly there are many people in abusive relationships or, or just relationships that don't serve them. And, but getting out of that environment when that's your entire life. And now obviously in your case, this was literally your drug dealer. How do you get away so that you're far enough away? And I don't mean both necessarily physically in terms of miles, obviously you could drive, right? But like, mm -hmm. how do you get away from that entire environment. So it just, it doesn't come back. Mm -hmm. I think you have to just completely cut the cord. And that's what I did. There was no communication. I left in the middle of the night. I actually had a, another vision the last night that I left scared me straight. And I got up, took my dog, took my stuff and I went home and I've never seen that man again. There was a few conversations via phone 
but there has been minimal communication. And there were attempts by him to reach out to me that I denied. So I basically walked away. I don't know how to say it other than that. And I talked to people about it and I was given the, I had this inner turmoil of, do I need to have some kind of closure? Do I need to explain to him why I'm leaving or why I left? And the ultimate response that I received from people was, nope, I think your actions are going to speak loud enough. And due to the safety and the mental health (laughs) that I needed to um, preserve, it was best for me to just not communicate and just cut the cords. So I would say, though, if anybody is trying to get out of a situation like that, do not be afraid to ask for help. I know there are resources out there that are free to many people. And uh, obviously, if you need to file a protection order, that is certainly a powerful lever to pull in a situation like this. I didn't have to go down that that far. Um, ultimately, he recognized the cues and left me alone. But I would say a lot of it was the support of my family and friends. Well, let's talk about this. It's incredible that you were able to, as you just said, cut the cord. It's a much more dramatic version of cutting the cord than my own personal story, but (laughs) (laughs) different kind of cord, (laughs) different kind of cord, but I, but I prove, uh, let's talk about your financial state. So you've had this chaos for like a 15 plus period of time. And while you are high functioning, you would suspect that a lot of your financial decisions were probably subpar, especially the ones that you could keep hidden from the outside watching world. When you have this wake up moment and you look at the math, where are you standing? How much wreckage, financial wreckage is in your wake? Definitely in the six figures. So when I got sober, that was in 2010. So it was shortly after, you know, the crash of the market, which I knew nothing about because I was in a fog. I, you know, I had no idea what was going on, but I had, let's see, credit card debt, medical debt, and a bunch of student loan debt. And then I was upside down on a house that was in a neighborhood that was definitely not bouncing back from the crash of the market. I tried to keep it for another four years, but um, it was not recovering. And so initially when I got sober, I did not focus too much on my finances. I did make some minimal changes. Like I cut the cord literally with my cable and internet and I decided I could go to the library. And so I just tried to drive down some basic expenses. I stopped using my credit cards. I did cash out some money from uh you know, an STRS fund, which was probably not the smartest thing. And then I consolidated a bunch of my credit cards with a consumer credit counseling service. And, you know, hindsight, probably not all the best decisions. Some of them were good. Some of them maybe not, maybe sent me back. But um, I just did enough to kind of keep afloat so that I could focus on working on my recovery first and foremost. And it was about four years before I became really ready to focus on my finances. So, Deanna, you're describing six figures, 100K plus of various types of debt, including this underwater house, and and also describing you taking action. So please don't beat yourself up about this was not the perfect choice. I mean, the fact that you were taking action on your finances at that point is remarkable. And it seems like this recovery was happening in tandem with your your addiction recovery. Talk us through the timeline. Like, How long does it take you to get back to zero? in your personal finances, how essential was that to you? Like, was that a stated goal to get to zero? Like, was that a driving force in your life? At first, when I started to work on my finances, I just wanted to get peace of mind. I knew I did not have peace of mind with my financial life. So I started to gain a bit of peace about who I was and an understanding of where I came from and the choices I had made and changed a lot of habitual thinking and patterns and gained a 
big sense of peace surrounding that stuff. And so naturally, I wanted that to spill out into all areas of my life. And that included my financial life. I did not have peace of mind about my finances. I felt like I was, you know, had an albatross around my neck. I felt like there was no way out. I felt like I was way below the line financially, and I was. And so when I put out the call for help, I was steered to Dave Ramsey. I started to employ his methods. I followed the debt snowball method to get out of debt. And there were bits of his advice that I chose not to follow. At times, I would feel guilty about that. But when I came into the FI community, I was actually kind of applauded for not following all of his advice. But anyways, he was a great mentor to me. And I think his gift to the world is he speaks to the person who's down and out and really doesn't see a way out. And so I didn't know where to start. And a woman from my church met with me and just taught me the basics. She sat me down and got me on a budget, something I had never done my whole life. I had always lived beyond my means. And she just helped me plug in the numbers into a simple Excel budget. And it was freeing. I always had thought budgets were constraining. And uh, once, once I got on it, I found a great amount of freedom being able to tell my money where to go. And then she taught me the basics of a debt snowball. And so I was off and running. And at that point, you know, I had credit card debt, medical debt, student loan debt, and then the big one, which was my mortgage. And at that point, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do about the mortgage, but I knew I needed to pay off all the other ancillaries. And so I just started focusing on that. And that was in 2014. Um, and then partway through, I had some major things uh, break in my house. Uh, then my dog died. And I was in this neighborhood that was not really safe for a single woman. And so I kind of came to a crossroads of what do I do with this house? I either pour more money into it that I don't really have. I go into debt to kind of fix it, or I can choose to walk away. And, uh, you know, I prayed and I thought about it. And so I ended up moving out into a ministry house and pursued a short sale. So I worked with a realtor to short sale the house. I thought there would be no reason it wouldn't go through. And about a year into that, I got declined and it went into a foreclosure. And so I was, uh, you know, this was a low point in my sobriety. It was like, this is not what I had planned. This is bad, bad, bad. You know, I'm going to lose the house. I might still have to pay for it and my credit's going to be ruined. And so I didn't really have much of a choice though at that point. I hired an attorney, I paused my snowball and amazingly it ended fairly well. The bank bought the house back. They waived the deficiency. My credit took a hit, but I will tell you, a couple years of intensely paying off the rest of your debt, my credit is excellent. So it is possible wow. to bounce back. I know, so, it's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited for you. I mean, we talked about having the six-figure number. I mean, I would imagine at some point, once you clear the house out, may, maybe we're talking somewhere in between 40 to 60K of consumer mm -hmm. debt, aside from the house, somewhere in that range. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. Just under 47,000. I mean, and, and we're talking about this path to get you back to zero, which implies that you're paying off a serious amount of consumer debt. And probably a lot of this doesn't have great interest rates as well. I'm just curious, what sort of income is driving this path back to broke, this path back to zero? Are you a six-figure income earner? Not yet, but that... <laughs> yeah, I'm working towards that. Love so it. when I when I started this, I was making 40k. You know, by the time I paid it off, I'm up in the the mid 60s. So I've had a bit of a jump. Help me figure out how you're able to pull this off. So you're starting at a forty thousand dollar a year income. We've talked about how you've raised it, but on day one, that's not where you were at. 
And somehow you're able to pay off an incredible amount of consumer debt, not including the house. We know how the house resolved itself, but you know, we obviously have talked about the pillars Phi. you've written about it on your site. And ultimately the messaging being, we all have access to the same levers. Your journey may steer you to one or the other, but I mean, your options are basically, do I focus on the income? Do I focus on the frugal living? Do I focus on what I really value? How can I drive down my monthly expenses? What did you do to create such a profound gap that allowed you to essentially pay off forty to sixty thousand dollars in consumer debt on a forty to sixty thousand dollar salary. How do you do this? Yeah. So I pulled multiple levers. The first thing was when I moved into this ministry house, it was, you know, it's a form of house hacking. I lived with five other people and communal living and we shared on the expenses. The rent was low. We took turns cooking. So I drove down my expenses tremendously by making that choice. And then I additionally focused on my career. I thought about getting a part-time job to bring in some extra income, but ultimately I think it turned out to be the best decision. I just focused on working really hard at my main career and my boss recognized it. And he also knew I was paying off debt and I was awarded financially. I received one year, I received a 20% raise, which is amazing. And (laughs) I know, and I've jumped since then because I'm, valuable to the company. So I just made myself really valuable there and proved myself. And every time I got an increase, you know, I would tithe off the top, but then everything went towards the debt. Furthermore, once the house foreclosed, I kind of came to this place of, all right, 36K left. What can I do to get even more intense? And so I met with somebody that was keeping me financially accountable and we slashed some more things out of my budget. Like you know, I stopped highlighting my hair and just little ancillary things. But ultimately, I asked my parents if they would let me move in with them. And so I knew if I had no rent payment, then I could really expedite this process. And I asked them for two years and they were gracious and said yes. Once I moved in with them, I was able to do it in a year and a half. So it, that time got truncated down even further. This is amazing. So in your mid to late thirties, you moved back in with your parents. And for multiple reasons, I want to highlight this because I know that when you look back at your childhood, your relationship with your father was tumultuous at best. So I'm curious to go back to that, to go back Mm -hmm. in with your parents. One, was there ever a sense of, well, this is what failure looks like. And, and I'm not saying this is my perspective. I'm just asking you from your perspective, is this, is this failure to be a boomerang child in your late thirties? And then two, in the context of having such a childhood with strife, this relationship that we had with your father, were you expecting, or did you walk right back into that? Mm, I have a lot to say about this. So first off, I was actually 44 when I moved in with my parents. So it's pretty recent. I just moved out this May of 2018 Previous to that, my father and I have worked on our relationship. So I've went to him in my sobriety and made an amends for all the fear and the worry and the concern that I caused him. And, you know, something beautiful has happened. He has in turn made a couple amends to me. And he really recognized without me ever pointing out the things that I felt that I was missing. He saw it on his own. And I think it came through me forgiving him. And then he felt this conviction to look at his life and how he was with me. And he made a direct and very honest amends to me for, you know, not being there, not being the father that a girl needs. And um, because of that, our relationship has taken a turn and we are both very intentional about our relationship. And, you know, there are still times because we're both type A personalities, we are very similar and we can clash. But when I 
chose to move in. I remember I asked for two years. My father said, I'll give you a year and a half and then we'll reevaluate it at that point. <laughs> but <laughs> at the, you know, it's so typical, but at the year and a half mark, they were ready. They were like, yeah, just keep staying. You're welcome to stay here longer. Why don't you save up some money? So I actually stayed a few, few months further and saved up a bunch of money. I don't think they wanted me to leave. And partially I didn't want to leave. <laughs> it was kind of nice. And I felt like, God gave me a second chance. The last time I had lived with them, I was in my, you know, I was 21. I was rebellious. I had shaved my head. I was like overtly rebellious to them and causing them a lot of strife and worry and concern. And, you know, here I am 44, moving back in with my parents. And I did have a moment early on where I felt like a failure. I felt like, what are you doing? I'm 44 years old. I'm living with my parents. I was a little bit embarrassed. And then I quickly reframed that with, you know what, I am here with a purpose and for a reason, and I am going to knock this debt out. I'm going to stay focused. I worked really hard and we restored our relationship even further. And, you know, as a blessing, I was able to see the things that they need help with. You know, they're getting older and I don't think I would have recognized a lot of that had I not lived with them. And so now I'm able to be that daughter who comes by every Sunday and helps them out with things that they need help with. It's I keep crying. A lot of okay. <laughs> Stop doing this to me. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Deanna, this, yeah. this truly is, I mean, it's the most incredible story. I mean, to, to come full circle with your father and to repair the relationship and not just repair it, but to come to a point where you love spending time with them. I mean, it's, I mean, it's remarkable. Obviously you wouldn't wish the addiction on anyone and certainly on yourself, but to now have this relationship with them, it just has to feel so incredibly satisfying and just huge, huge kudos to you for everything you've done. It's, it really, really is amazing. And yeah, like Jonathan says, like it's, it's hard to not cry in this. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just a remarkable story. And I'm always looking to tease out actionable tips for the audience. And, and I want to just for a quick second, since it is a, a financial independence podcast, to, to talk about the debt snowball. So mm -hmm. there are many people who are listening to this who are familiar with Dave Ramsey and, and certainly many that are not. So you had these various types of debts, certainly varying interest rates and different amounts. How did you personally tackle that debt? And I guess, how would Dave Ramsey advise it if there are any differences there? Mm -hmm. It's my understanding that he is originator of the debt snowball, but it's basically just this method where you list all your debts, smallest to largest, regardless of the interest rate, and you start to tackle the smallest one first. And so you do whatever you can to throw extra money at that. So you're paying the minimum on everything. And then you attack the smallest one with, you know, selling stuff, working an extra job, whatever cutting down your expenses, and then you pay that small one off fairly quickly. So the idea is you get this psychological win. And then once you've paid off the smallest, you snowball that payment into the next biggest and so on. So your snowball, by the time you get to the end of you know the biggest debt, your snowball is rather large. It worked for me. And you know since I've gotten out of debt, now I've learned about the debt avalanche, which is kind of the reverse, where you take your debts and you list them the highest interest debt first and you attack that one first. I kind of benefited from both, not knowingly, because my smallest debts were also my highest interest. So I got the mathematical as well as the psychological win, but I don't have a problem with either. You know, whatever is going to work for you, I say, choose one. Yeah. And I've been exposed to both for a while and I've actually started in my own mind, kind of blending the two and just thinking, breaking them up between smaller consumer debts, thousand dollars or less, maybe high interest rates and these larger debts 
that, you know, maybe like your student loan debt, that sort of thing, and kind of breaking the puzzle into those two pieces. With smaller debts, I love the psychological ones. Regardless of interest rates, let's crush those. With larger debts, it matters to pay attention to the interest rate and be a little bit more mindful when you make a decision on that. So can I pay this off in two weeks? Regardless of interest rate, let's just be done with this. Let's make our life more simple. Is this going to take three years? Let's pay a lot more attention to that interest rate because those can have some real numbers attached to it. And so it kind of, I, but I think just knowing the like having a plan and writing all your debts out, it always, it always starts there. And then having a plan, mm. following through on the plan. Absolutely. So Deanna, I'm just trying to piece together the timeline here. It sounds like this has all happened in the last year, year and a half where you got to zero and you've moved out of your parents' house now. And I'd love to hear how you found the Phi community and where you are in your financial journey and where you're going from here. Yeah. Yeah. I paid off my debt on December 29th, 2017, and then moved out of my parents' house on May 1st of 2018. But at that point, I had already been entrenched in the FI community. So a colleague of mine, Carson, turned me on to the Choose FI podcast back in the spring of 2017. So pretty fairly early on in your career. I remember listening to a couple episodes and I went to him. I was like, what is this community? Like, <laughs> are you kidding me? Who are like these people? people? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, not surprising, I'm a person that's all in when I find something I love. And I immediately or pretty quickly knew that this would be the next leg of my journey. So I dove in head first and, you know, as you know, started getting active in the Facebook group and just listening and commenting and calling in and got really excited about this next leg of my journey. And so it also helped provide motivation to just finish out that debt as quick as possible so that I could really focus on investing and um, moving forward. And so that's, you know, where I'm at. So that was partially why I decided to start my own blog was I wanted the accountability and thank you guys for letting me be one of the writers at your site that gave me the uh, platform to kind of start practicing and decide if I really wanted to chronicle my journey. And so I did and launched my blog at Camp Phi Mid-Atlantic, thanks to Kevin Clack. And uh, so I've been writing since April. And yeah, it forces me to learn about things that I'm not sure about um, and then to chronicle my journey. And as you know, you know, I started out the new year debt-free, so it I pretty much started setting up to max out all my retirement accounts from January 1st. And so I'm maxing out a simple IRA, which is what I have access to at work. And then I max out a HSA. So I convinced my boss to put me on an HSA qualified health plan so I could have access to an HSA account. So I'm maxing that out. And additionally, I'm maxing out a Roth IRA. Uh, furthermore, I have, you know, like a six month emergency fund. I have enough money also saved to replace my car when it dies. And then furthermore, I'm saving to potentially buy a house or do some house hacking in the near future. How so it, how does it feel to have all these options? Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> like I own my entire paycheck and I get to choose what to do with it. It's, it, it's such a, new feeling to me, but I've taken charge of it pretty quickly. And, you know, it was an easy transition from paying everything to the debt to, all right, I'm not seeing that money. So now I'm just going to apply it to all these savings accounts. And I, you know, likewise, I don't see that money. It just goes directly into them. I have and, two um, questions for you that are both, I'm just curious for your perspective. One is the FI community. Do you, do you see a lot of appeal there for somebody that is still massively in debt? 
I'm just curious your take on that. Both now you're debt free and I can see it like, oh, wow, I'm getting started on building my perpetual money making machine. That's, that's one angle. But then for you, I'm looking at the person that's 40 K in debt and they're just trying to get back to broke. What's your take on that? Yeah. And I struggle with this because I know my story has appealed to particularly women in recovery or women that are trying to gain control of their financial life. And that's a lot of who I help. And so when I write, I try to, I think I'm going to hone in on them a little bit more, but I think about, you know, are they motivated by these articles about working towards financial independence or is it really intimidating them? And so I'm not quite sure. And I'm going to try to figure that out. But I know for me, it was very motivating. I was also near the end of my debt payoff. And so it was just like, wow, this is the exciting thing that I get to work on once I get above the line. And above the line is on the other side of zero. Yep. Now, exactly. my other question that was tied to this is, quote unquote, you found this so late. This is, I, I wish that I had heard this in my 20s. Is it too late? I get that email. I'm curious, what is this? Is this a 30 year path to five for you where, oh, great, you're going to be, you're going to reach financial independence by the time that you're 80? <laughs> no way. <laughs> Not if I can help it. I did realize that I was starting really late and I thought if I can just retire respectfully at the normal retirement age of 65, I'd be happy. But once I started doing the calculations and obviously with a higher savings rate, I've calculated that I can probably get there in about 14 years. So per my estimations, I should be able to get to FI at age 59, which I will consider a big win. Maybe sooner. I do know that when I set my sights on something, I usually achieve it sooner than I set out to. So I'm expecting that might happen. But if not, so I'm- assuming that you don't get a single any additional income from now to the age of 59 and a half, you're going to be able to reach financial independence before you hit 60. Assuming that this Type A individual that was able to pay off 40k and can and talk to her boss and he realized that she needed a 20 percent raise that very next year. Assuming that you don't make another dollar you're going to reach financial independence by the age of 60. Yep. I think you're in pretty good shape. Congratulations. (laughs) Your story is so amazing. I'm so excited to be on the other end of this call for it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, Deanna, it is beyond amazing. And I think you give hope to so many people out there, people who who have a similar background, but also people who have made financial mistakes. You're starting at zero at... 45 years old, and you expect to get to FI in a conservative timeline of 14 years. That's astounding. I mean, anybody can do this if they set their mind to it. And your story is the perfect, perfect example. So, I mean, a sincere thank you for coming on the show. This is, this was truly remarkable. Deanna, just for our audience, people listening to this, they heard the story. It resonates either because it affects their life so dramatically, or maybe it affects a loved one and they want to share your content with them so that they can also find out more about these decisions that you've made. What is the best way for someone to connect with you and connect with your content? Yeah. And I, I love to work with people and help people on their journey. So um, you can reach me at my website, which is misphiology.com. So for the listeners, that's M-S-F-I-O-L-O-G-Y.com. Or you can find me on Twitter. I'm pretty active there as Ms. Phyology or Instagram. All right. Now on most shows, that would be the end of the episode. But Deanna, on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? Bring it. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. 
Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, Deanna, question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own. All right. So I think I have to go with the first blog that I started reading and following, which is ESI Money. Um, love his stuff. And then maybe for a lesser known blog that's bringing me a lot of inspiration is Saving Joyfully. Awesome. We will have both of those linked in the show notes. Question number two, your favorite article of all time. Now, this can be one that you've written or it can be somebody else's. All right. So actually, the article that probably has brought me the most inspiration is an article that is about 2000 years old. So when I started working on my finances, I focused on this article as inspiration. And so it's a story uh, parable from the Bible, the parable of the 10 talents. And it's just, I'll paraphrase, it's a story about a ruler who was very wealthy and he went away on a journey. And so he entrusted three of his servants with much of his wealth. And so he gave one servant five talents and a talent is just a denomination of money. So I think one talent equals about $1.4 million. So we're talking about a large sum of money. So again, he gave one servant five talents. He gave another servant two talents. And then he gave a third servant one talent and he left. And so the first servant took the five talents. He traded it, invested it. He doubled the money. The second servant did similar. He invested it and doubled his money. And then the third servant took his talent and buried it in the ground. And so when the ruler came back to settle his accounts, he met with the first servant and the servant said, you know, master, you gave me five talents. I have invested and traded it. Here is 10. And so he said, well done, servant. You were faithful over a little. I'm going to make you ruler over much. Likewise, he came to the second servant and he said, yeah, master, you gave me two. Here is four. I have doubled your money. And so he said, you were faithful over a little. I will make you ruler over much. And then he comes to the third servant and the servant says, ah, master, I know you to be a hard man and you reap where you haven't sown and you gather where you haven't scattered. And so I was afraid and I buried talent in the ground. But everything you gave me is here. Here is your one talent. And the ruler says, you wicked servant, you wicked and lazy servant. Why did you at least not put my money in the bank and earn me some interest? And so he took the one talent from him and gave it to the guy who had 10. When I thought about that, and I'm obviously a person of faith, and you often hear that money is the root of all evil. And so I was focusing on my money and I was pondering it. And reading that parable made me realize that, yeah, my God wants me to be a good steward and a wise investor of my money. You know, if there was a four servant, I bet you that guy, if he knew what you knew, he'd probably have chosen VTSAX, but we won't hold it against the third guy there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, man. All right, Deanna, question number three, your favorite life hack. Meal prepping bar none. Brad, I think your wife, Laura, does a lot of this. And, you know, I love to eat. I also don't love to be in the kitchen every day. So I've found that I spend a few concerted hours on the weekend preparing all my meals for the week. And it just saves a lot of time. It helps me eat healthier. And so I just, I make a big batch of smoothies and I dole them out into mason jars and I freeze them for my breakfast. And then I make a big salad for my lunches. And then I usually make some kind of meal like a soup, a big vat of soup or another meal. And then I parcel it into individual containers and freeze it. And that way I have a variety of things to pull out every day and uh, eat. This is one of, honestly, the secrets on our path to FI. To me, it is the ultimate life hack. You're saving tons of time. You're saving decision fatigue, right? You don't have to think every meal, what am I going to yeah. eat? You're getting healthier and you're saving a boatload of money. 
There's yep. simply no question about it. I mean, we estimate we save somewhere around, I don't know, $700 a month as compared to what our friends and neighbors spend. I mean, wow. that's real money, real, real money when you're talking about just being smart about your meal preps. So yeah, I really love that one. And it's something I've been thinking about much more frequently recently on what has really gotten us to FI. And to me, it's it's a few big things. And that is one of the main ones. We were having a panel recently and we were talking with some individuals and this kind of question was posed to you. Ultimately, a lot of what we come back to is we're a little bit more intentional with our housing. We drive paid off for used cars and we watch our food and there's other stuff. And it sounds too easy, right? It sounds too simple. Mm-hmm. Like that couldn't possibly move the needle, but it's, it's it does. millions of dollars over your investing lifetime. Not only is it millions of dollars over an investing lifetime, it's just for those three things. That's probably $30,000 a year. We save over friends and neighbors just in our specific area. That's, that's not cutting anything else. That's not depriving yourself or anything. It's we mm-hmm. live in a nice house. We drive perfectly functional old cars and we eat exceptionally well and we're healthy, mm-hmm. but we just don't go out to eat and we don't rush around at the last minute buying fast food. That's not a deprived life at all. That's no. a wonderful, wonderful life. It's just being intentional. Yep. It sure is. All right. Question number four, your biggest financial mistake. All right. So I've been thinking about this one and I was wondering if I should try to calculate the opportunity cost of all my financial mistakes. And I've made many, obviously living beyond my means and spending what I didn't have. And I did have to file bankruptcy in my 20s when I got divorced. And then obviously the house, I lost a foreclosure. But I am a big fan of getting to the root of things. And so if I would look at what was the genesis of all my poor financial decisions, it was not following the example that my parents led by. So they were good stewards of their money. They lived within their means. They saved and paid cash for all their cars. They invested and saved for their retirement. They invested and saved for their children's college education. And so I had all these examples laid out before me, but for all the reasons we've discussed in this show, I was a rebellious kid. And as soon as I started working, I started spending money. And I recognize that money did bring freedom, but I did not recognize the value of saving. And so I believe I started with a scarcity mindset right off the bat. So that I would say would be my biggest financial mistake. And this so closely ties to our question five that I'll just go ahead and roll into this. Like, what advice would you give to your younger self? And there's some obvious stuff, but I'm curious if behind the obvious messaging, if there's something else that you would lead with. Yeah. So this is a tricky one because I don't think that there is anything that I could have said or anybody else could have said to me that would have changed the trajectory of my life. Had experiences been different in my childhood, I might not be sitting here, somebody uh, who's recovered from addiction. And looking back, I certainly wouldn't choose a life of addiction. And additionally, I know that's not the life that God chose for me. But he wastes nothing, and now everything that I've been through and overcome has chiseled me into the woman that I am today, and part of my purpose is tied to what I've overcome. So I regret nothing. But having said all that, if I could say something to my younger self, it would probably be something like, girl, buckle up because you are in for a ride. But I want you to know that no matter where you end up, you were created with a distinct and a unique purpose. And I want you to keep going until you figure out what that is. And once you do, your life will no longer be about you. It will be about other people. 
Deanna, how can I possibly like even waste a second and ask you a bonus question after you're going to close like that? It's not even, it's not even fair, but I don't want to rob you because I know you've put some time thinking into this. So, uh, we, we are going to ask it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I have a good answer. Yeah. Deanna, I, that is the, the most amazing end, but the chiseled myself into a stronger woman or the woman that I am today. And that, that just gave me chills. I mean, that, that is one of the most remarkable things I've ever heard. So yeah, I mean, I guess with that, I'll, I'll go into the bonus question here, which is see how I got out of the way of the bonus question and let you be the one to ask it. <laughs> <laughs> you Thanks, can seem like I... the shallow one. Brad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. This is all he cares about is just asking a silly bonus question. <laughs> yeah. What did you buy? I want to know. So, okay. So, so we will ask, which is, you know, in the last 12 months, what purchase have you made that's added the most value to your life? Yeah. So it's actually a book that I got on Audible. So several months back, I was listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast episode where he played a chapter of the book Essentialism by Greg McEwen. And it resonated with me as something that I needed to get better at. And while I usually get most of my books through the library, I recognize that this might be a book that I would want to revisit time and time again. And so I activated my Audible account and got the book because I could listen to it read by the author in his British accent. My sense was right. I've already listened to the book twice since owning it for a couple months. And it's basically a book about learning to say no to the non-essential things in your life so that you can free up more space and time for the essential things. And what is essential in one person's life may not be essential for another person. So it's also a book about discovering your purpose and your true life's calling. He also gives some very practical examples of how to gracefully say no. And I love how he talks about saying no is a opportunity to trade popularity for respect because you may disappoint somebody in the minute or the day or the week when you say no to something, but you gain the respect of others because you become the type of person whose yes means yes and no means no. And I want to be that kind of person. That was a good bonus question. I'm glad we asked Is that, that good? question, Brad. Okay. <laughs> I thought you might be. <laughs> it's such a good book. Deanna, this has been one of the most important episodes that we possibly have ever recorded. And I am so grateful for you being willing to come on the show, share your vulnerability, not just on MissViology.com, but not just on MissViology.com, but with our listening audience. I think there are potentially thousands, tens of thousands of people that need to hear this and know someone that this will directly impact. So thank you again for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be with you guys and share my story. All right, my friends, if you got value from this episode, if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us and what we're doing here at Chooseify, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. To do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of Fi, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free. And just go to chooseify.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cap. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 100. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. 
You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.